beginning. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Sean Ram, as always, alongside with Joshua Black. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining in and uh, listening to another podcast. We're always grateful for all the listens and when you send us emails and tell us about your own dreams. And, you know, again, we'd like to give a shout out to all of our listeners in Canada, all across Canada, all across the United States and all across the world as well. So our next guest is actually from Rhode Island, the wonderful state of Rhode Island. Uh, Her name is Mary Diaz. So Mary is a full time professor, sorry, full professor in counseling at Johnson and Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island. She holds a doctorate in educational leadership and a master's degree in counseling. Uh, Mary is a nationally certified counselor and holds certifications in both Grief Counseling, Institute of Healthcare Professionals, and Complicated Grief from Columbia University. In addition, Mary holds a fellowship in Thanatology from Association for Death Education and Counseling, is a volunteer for hospice with both end-of-life and bereavement support, director of Grace Point Grief Center, and talk show host of Journeys with Grace Point Grief, with a moniker of The Grief Whisperer. She is currently working on her first novel, Life of Size, which focuses on loss and grief. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So last time we spoke, I I had the pleasure to be on your show. So what's it like coming on to another show? Oh, it's it's awesome. It's it's um, there's no pressure because I don't have to come up with questions and be prepared. I just get to respond and I love to talk about myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad this is uh, really suited for you then. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I still get nervous before, like, shows a little bit. Um, I actually think being the uh, question asker is less nerve-wracking than getting questions asked towards you. But you're Ah, the opposite. Yes, I am. Hmm. All right. Interesting. So let's, you've had, you've had a a long life, it seems, with all these. (laughs) Yes, I'm uh, old. Say it out. (laughs) (laughs) You've had a long, illustrious life. (laughs) And not, yeah. I think, yeah, you've had some excellent experiences. You have a great background. And, you know, could you walk us through how it got started and what fueled your interest into getting into counseling in the first place? Well, as you didn't mention but referred to Josh I am old and so yes I've had <laughs> I didn't I didn't really was going that way <laughs> but if you want to say it that's okay <laughs> you know I was just in the car with my younger brother and um we pulled up to a pharmacy window and the pharmacist knew both of us and he looked out the window and he said to my brother oh you're driving Miss Daisy well I was so insulted. <laughs> so now I just have that, you know, in my head. I'm so old. I'm so old. <laughs> Even the little young pharmacist is calling me Miss Daisy. So um, into counseling. Well, by accident, I will say, you know, what Winnie the Pooh says, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. Uh, although I thought I knew where I was going. So my bachelor's degree is in English uh, creative writing. And my intention was always to teach high school or college English. I just love the written word. And um, and I really didn't have a lot of alternatives because my dream, uh, since as long as I can remember, was to be a funeral director like my father. He was my hero. And I spent much of my uh, early childhood and adolescence as well trying to impress him so that I could go into the family business. But the answer was a resounding no. 
because I'm a girl. And um, I had three brothers. And so they got to go into the business, but I wasn't allowed to. Of course, this was another, you know, another century ago, Josh. And um, so it was probably more acceptable back then to deny having a woman in the business. Plus, you have religious and Italian cultural uh, issues uh, surrounding that. I always say that Italians baptize their sons in a reserved Barolo wine, and they baptize their daughters, like myself, in tap water. So uh, that is to say that young girls were not, you know, um, well, they weren't celebrated. So my father said, go be a teacher. And that's what I planned to do and followed my love with English. However, uh, concurrently with that, my mother began to struggle with depression and was in and out of the hospital with treatment and also with electric shock treatment. So I found this fascination. I always tell my students, you know, there's there's a fascination between the brain and the mind. The brain I've held in my hands when I was attempting to impress upon my father that I wasn't squeamish, and I sat in the morgue watching an autopsy and held the brain of a very high-powered mafia official, (laughs) as it were, and uh, that didn't impress him at all. But then I became really curious about the mind because of my mother's struggle. So those were always interests, but they were, well, I don't want to say secondary because I would find myself reading a lot about the brain and the mind. And so it was still the reading and I needed to, you know, support myself. So I thought I'll go into teaching. And it just so happened that at that period of time, which um, you probably weren't born, but it was um, mid-1970s when I first started teaching and there were no full-time teaching positions. So I substituted for a year and it was just very serendipitous that there was a summer job available, which was a intake counselor. And so I took the summer job and I just fell in love with working with clients. And I don't know, it kind of, I don't know, I thought there was kind of a relationship between English and counseling because I was reading about people and why they think and feel and behave the way they do. And now I was actually meeting people. But at the time, there was no certification, there was no specialties, there were no licenses. So someone coming to see me as an intake counselor for uh, as a career counselor, you know, brought a whole host of issues. They all have a story. And those issues, you know, weren't really around not being employed. They were around reasons why they weren't employed. So it really was a wonderful training experience for me. But I tend to be a bit reactive rather than proactive because when I finished that gig, I said, you know what, you have no education in this. You, you need to have some, you know, courses in your background. So I stayed on as the intake counselor and went on to get my master's degree in counseling at the same time that I was finishing my master's degree in English. So eventually that job took me to the state level and then took me to a supervisory position at the state level and did case management and supervision and training of therapists And I absolutely loved it and stayed in counseling, but hadn't quite mm, earmarked a special population. I was always very much interested in um, people who are marginalized. 
So I worked a lot with abuse victims, rape victims, just women in general, um, worked at the prison for 11 years in men's maximum, working with pedophilia and issues like that. I worked with the homeless. I worked with the severely mentally ill. And, you know, it's kind of slapped me on the side of the head because it took me this long to all of a sudden stop and think, well, I love teaching. I'm not real crazy about all the administrative work. And I'm probably close to retirement age. But I want to continue teaching, but I also want to get back into practicing. But I have to really sit myself down and identify a a specific population. And that's when I said, well, again, slap me in the side of the head. What am I thinking about? I wanted to be a funeral director all my life. I was always just so fascinated with death and dying. And uh, my grandparents lived in the funeral home. And why aren't I working with bereaving people or people who are dying? So that's when I decided, which is about six years ago, I decided to go and get trained and volunteer with hospice. And then that experience solidified it. It was, yes, this is where you're supposed to be. So I, um, I opened Grace Point Grief Center and work with both end-of-life clients and those who are grieving. And I ha- this, is, this is kind of another, you know, serendipitous piece. I, I'm not really big on marketing, and I didn't want to market too much with Grace Point because I am, you know, full-time professor. So it's not like I'm available for therapy 40 hours a week. So the only marketing I did was a voiceover commercial on a radio program. And it was, you know, just talking about Grace Point grief. And it only ran five times because it was so expensive. But the producer called me and said, love the way you sound on this commercial. Would you be interested in having your own show? And that's what brought me to the radio show. And that's where I sit today with many hats. Wow, that's amazing. It's actually, it's so cool just listening to your journey, right? Because like we're, our journeys are really just getting started. Um, mine's still like in the midst stuff to finish school (laughs) but like that journey is getting started and you can see how many changes and where the where life takes you and it's not sometimes where you think it is I think that's no it took me full circle really I came full circle are you happier now than you were when you first started like was it did you change in the sense of for your like in your growth or was it just like you're happy you know um doing the one and then being uh the other like so did happiness change along the way too? I'm content. I am. Um, I'm very much type A personality. Um, I always tell my students that uh, my epitaph is going to read, "I'm not finished yet," even if I'm 110. So I always have further goals, and when I achieve one, I I look for another, or you know, I have this whole ritual of. I do my bucket list every New Year's Eve, and then every New Year's, I review the the past year, and then I create the, cross off what I've accomplished, and then create the next one, and I use that website, um, Future Me, where you can email yourself and have, just put in a date for that email to come back to you, so I'm always checking in on myself every three months, I'll receive an email from myself saying, Mary, remember you said last three months ago that you were going to have this accomplished. Did you do that? So I think I've been racing for many years. And I think when I say content that I've actually started to breathe and sat down and said, I don't need 
into race anymore. But there's, a, there's another caveat to this story. When I was a senior in high school, I was very, very ill. And, you know, typical teenager, don't tell anybody, I don't want to go to the doctor, all of that. And it ended up with a, very serious complications and I don't know if you're familiar with the Catholic ritual of the last rites, but I was given the last rites. Uh, my parents were told that I was not going to survive. I had 13 surgeries. And, um, you know, at that age, I, I did not, when I uh, survived, I didn't stop to smell the roses. I had a whole different message. My message was hurry up, hurry up and do everything that you need to do because you don't know how long you're going to be here for. And then when I had a reoccurrence in the early 90s, um, that made me race even more. But now I'm at the age where, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people my age are passing away from just age-related illnesses. So maybe that's part of why I'm content, because, you know, I'm at an age where it's acceptable to die, not 17. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's it's interesting because when you look at high achievers and people who have high drive, it's, it's a good thing and a bad thing because, again, you're striving to improve yourself. You're continuously improving. You're, you're going towards that. And it allows you to kind of look at your project or whatever it is you're working on and see weaknesses and see things that you could do better. Mm -hmm. And it can be difficult then on the flip side is sitting in the moment and appreciating how far you have come and appreciating the things that you have done. Like, you know, as an example, like with when it, when it came down to doing this podcast, when it came down to each episode that we did, you know, I, I wasn't satisfied with the audio quality and, you know, you know, or, you know, I'm sure Josh wasn't satisfied with how the interviews were going, but it just led to striving, moving forward and getting it better and better and better and better. And, now I'm trying to, I'm better at now where I'm trying to sit back and appreciate some of those things and be like, wow, look how far we've come. So, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad you're content now and I'm glad you're looking back and I hope you're looking back and seeing all the amazing things that, that you've done along the way and, and can look at it and say, you know, look how I've driven myself to do all these amazing things. These doors have opened up, you know, which I initially didn't think those options would be available to me, but through that energy and that drive and that staying positive, you've been able to kind of now find yourself in a position that, you know, you're doing amazing things and you're helping others. So what led you to then become the director at Grace Point Grief Center? Um, well, let me just backtrack for one minute and say that I, I have to thank the university and the opportunity to be a full professor in counseling because I need to practice what I preach. And when I'm standing there, and I have a very kind of existential philosophy, and I'm, I'm always saying to my students, this is your day. You can do what you'd like with this day, but no, you'll never have this day again. And you'll never be as old or as young as you are today. And, you know, there's these 19, 20-year-old kids looking at me wide-eyed saying, Wow, that's deep. That's deep. And when I'm saying that, I truly believe it. But in the past, I've always, that's kind of been my mantra. But when I say, you know, this is your day and you'll never have it again, it's been, it's been driven by achieving. Now, because I'm, you know, I'm teaching mindfulness and I'm teaching stay in the moment and all of that, that as I said, I have to practice what I preach. And so in the process of teaching them, 
I'm relearning what I knew, you know, ephemerally already, but I wasn't practicing it. And in terms of your question about Grace Point, I came to the realization, as I mentioned before, about retiring from full-time. I know I will always be in a classroom, and my chair has promised me that I could be an adjunct till I die. So I will always teach, but I thought, that's not enough. What am I going to do, again, (laughs) what am I going to do with my retirement? And that's when I started thinking about the practice, and then that's when I started thinking about the, the population that I wanted to work with, and then it just... It just all just came just came together. It's funny when I think of retirement, I think about just lying on a beach or and, you know, like having having a drink and just sitting in nature and you're like, Oh, retirement, what can I do? <laughs> I know, I know. And I one year when I was crossing out what I accomplished on my bucket list on New Year's Eve before I created the new one, I found that I had crossed them all out and for a minute I I had I panicked and I thought oh my god I've reached self-actualization I don't have any goals I I guess that's time for me to die and I I couldn't find anything and then I thought oh I'm sure there's something you haven't done so I wrote in little small letters I wrote apply for a Fulbright to South Africa and it wasn't just a Fulbright it was to a specific country and a year and a half later, I found myself at the University of Zululand. What's a Fulbright? A Fulbright uh, is a federal scholarship for people who are specialists in their fields to go and visit universities in other countries, usually, uh, and share your expertise with people in your field in other countries. That's incredible. And I think, like, you know, I think now you're in the business of legacy building. You know, not, mm-hmm. not here in the business of leaving behind something that's not just going to resonate with your current generation, but also the next generations that move forward. And, you know, hopefully everything like with the Grace Point and Grief uh, Center, that'll continue on long, 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 long after you pass. Well, and, I hope so. Uh, that that is my that is my wish that uh, I tell my students when you graduate, there's a little bit of dais in all of you. <laughs> Because I really think that there is. And, uh, you know, every time my husband yells at me for spending every dime that I make uh, because I travel a lot, I said, no, you know, I want to leave our kids. They're adults, but I want to leave my kids with memories, not and with with those those memories are part of my legacy. And, you know, maybe if I ask them, they prefer the cash, but I'm not asking them. I'm just leaving them with these just wonderful memories of spending a couple of weeks with mom in different places around the world. Wow. It's so interesting. I'm so like, it's really cool about having goals each year. I don't, mm-hmm. ha- I don't like have that. It's like, I'll do something and then, you know, I'll focus on one aspect of my life a little bit. Then I'll move on. I like, I focused on like public speaking last year for like four months and I moved into like the podcast and really getting that off. Uh, the ground so we have like a show every week so there's just different small things that mm-hmm. I sort of focus on but i don't have like a board or something that i i write them down in the beginning of the year and say okay i got it i want to do these five things and so you're saying you you went to a point where you checked off everything off your list and you didn't mm-hmm. have any goals and so do you just make goals now just to check them off right like sometimes when there's like a chore or a, uh, i have a list of things i need to do for school i'll just make some stuff up like you know <laughs> Like clean my desk just so I can cross it off so I feel like I'm being more productive. <laughs> Is that like no. the same thing? No, I've never done that. 
I I had this quote on my office wall, which uh, is it's not mine. I forgot whose it was, but it's when I stand before God at the end of my life, I would hope that I would not have a single bit of talent left, and I could say I used everything you gave me. And that's always what was my motivation. That I've been very fortunate in actually still being walking this earth, and never mind the talents and skills and abilities and things that have been given to me. And I, so when I make that list, it's not just to put something to cross it off, but it's I want to make sure I don't forget anything. I've, I've seen, I've been at the deathbed of so many people doing end-of-life work, and there's just so many regrets. And I've also, you know, in working with the bereaved, so many regrets. I should have said this. I should have done that. Everything is should have, could have, would have. And I don't want to have any should have, could have, would have when I'm on my deathbed. Wow. Now you can at least say that you you can cross off that you've been on the Grief Dreams podcast. So That's now you right. can be happy <laughs> with no regrets. That's right. <laughs> I'm glad we're helping you as you move forward. <laughs> so what's, what's on your list now? Like, so we're just started, right? The new year. Do you, mm-hmm. what's, what's one thing on your list that you want to achieve? Finish the book. Mm, so please tell us more about this book. Well, it's Life of Size, but size is written as you would see it with the parentheses around it, like in subtitles. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like okay. uh, Winnie the Pooh likes to Oh, no, Eeyore likes to sigh a lot. Right, right but you yeah. know the way when you're watching a, a television uh, show and it has um, it's dubbed and it has the, the actual text written on the bottom, and then if there's anything audible, it'll say laughs in parentheses or size in parentheses oh, okay so it'll be life of and then below that will you have size of size and but the oh. size is in parentheses nice so, so i think my biggest struggle is do i write it in first person or third what i'm finding from professionals is they're telling me to write it in third person because i am too kind of well known in this very small state to be that self-disclosing to be i but I go back and look at it and say, I, I, I can't even give this character a name. I know, I know it's me. So thus far, it's uh, very auto-ethnographic. And it really takes almost all those experiences that I've shared with you and more. I, I haven't even talked about my theater experience. But, wow. but creates different characters who all lived part of my life part of my life. And it's very, it's fascinating to me as I write because, you know, I, I reread it and I think, oh my goodness, there's five characters, five different people who have these very full lives. And each one of their lives is part of mine. Am I living a life that's equal to five other people? <laughs> I would say yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's just, it's a journey through life. It's a, a journey, you know, beginning with my also not beginning, but also infused with a lot of experiences with death. In fact, I say in the prologue, I have a very complex relationship with death because I really, you know, I grew up with death. Um, My mother was the hairdresser and she had four children and she didn't get a babysitter every time she had to do a head. That was her expression. So um, she'd pile us all in the back seat and we'd go to the funeral home and my brothers would run around and they would have no interest whatsoever in what she was doing. And I would be standing on the kneeler and, you know, looking at the person in the casket and, and just thinking, but who are they? Like, who 
are they? What is the essence? Like, what did they do while they were alive? And every time I asked my father, I'd say, how did this person die? And he'd say, their heart stopped. And I would just get so frustrated because his, one of my father's favorite things to do um, was, actually, he was compelled to do it, I think, is every morning at breakfast over his cup of coffee, he would have the obituaries open in the newspaper. And he'd look at, you know, what the competition got. <laughs> how come we didn't get them? We got them. But I'm looking at the, this is how I learned how to read, by the way, is through the obituaries. And I would say, but dad, like, look at this person. They're 90 years old, but they only have one paragraph of their whole life. It must be more than that. And he would just try to placate me. So I got so frustrated that when I got a little bit older, I think I was about nine or 10, I, I started having, I made my father have the New York Times delivered because their obituaries are much better and they're much more um, detailed and give you a lot more information. So this way I could say, okay, if it says, you know, Joey Black died um, at age 86, donations made to the Diabetes Foundation, I could just kind of fill in the blank. So that started my creative writing, actually, was filling in the blanks of obituaries and creating the lives of people that I couldn't understand. And I still, to this day, can't understand why, if you know you're dying, your obituary is not written in first person. So mine is. <laughs> it's already written, and it's in first person. Oh, wow. You wrote your own. Oh, yes. It's updated <laughs> as often as my curriculum vitae is updated. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. I never even thought about that. What would I want to say to the world in like, because you get about a paragraph, right? A small paragraph. Well, it's, it's, you can you have as long as you want now. Like how, uh, how big is there? <laughs> are you taking a whole front page or? Um, well, you have to pay a lot of money right now, but I already told my brothers who are running the funeral home that I expect that I'm not going to be charged for this. And, and they keep saying, Mary, this is, you know, four columns now. You, you have to stop. <laughs> so I have all my prearrangements done. I have my casket chosen. I have the list of who's to do my hair and my makeup, what I'm going to wear, what flowers I want. Uh, all the music is chosen. All my pole bearers are chosen and on a guard. I'm going to have two wakes, one at one of the funeral home facilities and one at the other. Um, I have my funeral is to have police escorts and fireworks. And if I had my druthers, they would be oh, kind of like a stagecoach or something. <laughs> but it's all written down. I every, like that a lot. Like every that. piece is written down. Do you watch like uh, This Is Us? No. Oh, my goodness. I, if you get a chance to watch it, it, the last episode was just about honoring someone who died and how to celebrate a day in their life. And it was just so profound. Yeah, I mean, just you describing your own funeral, planning it out in such detail, that just leads us to make that assumption that you're very comfortable with death, which is, I think, a good thing. You know, we should be really comfortable with our death. We're, we talk about life a lot. We talk about a lot of other positive things. But when we talk about the thing that's looming on all of us, we're all just a little bit, uh, we don't really want to talk about it, don't want to think about it. Or that I'm a control freak. <laughs> Either one, right? Or both, or, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. And it's so cool how you said you, you are taking that initiative, you're doing that. And not a lot of people are. But I'm so fascinated how, as a child, you used to fill in the blanks. I'm thinking that'd be a really cool movie or something of someone like a child looking at this paper and, and making up this person's life based on 
what they saw. So you could even have a book, your next book be based on that aspect. I think that's so cool because you're right. Like there is such limited information. You got to fill in a lot of blanks for a lot yes. of different people. So interesting. So moving forward, since uh, we could just talk forever um, yeah. <laughs> on all sorts of different topics, uh, but let's go to your radio show because I think that's pretty unique. There's not, I don't know if there's a lot, lot of radio shows out there. I know you're one and maybe there's one more. I know there's a couple, maybe five or six podcasts out there. Mm -hmm. So why did you take that step? I know like that the they someone heard you, or the, the one guy heard you on the radio, but why did you say, oh, I got time for this? Like, why did you want to make that leap? <laughs> yeah, I could never say that because I didn't have time, <laughs> but I made time for some of the very same reasons that you're talking about. I mean, I'm like a pariah, <laughs> you know, people call me like, you know, if I'm on campus, like, oh, here she is, Dr. Death. Um, <laughs> You know, if you take her for a class, she's just really into depth. She's very morose. And then even dealing with people who in hospice, uh, families who are there, it's like death is contagious. People are fearful of it. And then I, I hear clients talking about, oh, you know, when my brother died, everyone was just rallied around us and left us lots of food and came to visit. But, you know, little by little, their life goes on, and, and I try to wave and say, wait a minute, look at me. I'm, st I'm still grieving. Why is the sun still shining? But, and, and all the horrific things that people say to them in an attempt to console them. And I just thought, I need a wider audience. I need to educate as many people as possible about all the facets of death. Uh, you know, I, I had a funeral director on. I had Josh on. I've had authors on. Um, but a lot of times it's just me. A lot of times it's just me talking about research that's been done, talking about what to say. I'll tell you, I get very few phone calls. People, I, even on the radio, which I thought, you know, being anonymous, they would be more apt to call. My Facebook blows up. My website blows up. My cell phone blows up, text, whatever. But to call the radio station, still, no, they're still kind of reticent. So, yeah, it's a long journey, a high hill to climb to make people feel comfortable with this. And so, really, that's the purpose of the radio show, to educate and wow. to honor. Because I, of, I often dedicate shows to people who call and say, could you dedicate this to so-and-so and talk about their life? Or if there's a horrific death in the state that everyone's aware of or whatever. That's nice. You give a platform for others to sort of talk about their loved ones or, or mm -hmm. share or talk about issues that people are thinking about, like, you know, celebrity deaths or, or different kind of deaths that occur in the media yeah. um, outside of the news, because the news isn't really about the compassion. They get like four minutes to talk about it and they move on. But you're giving it a different sort of place. Um, right. Exactly. To, to listen to. I like that. And so. Uh, you're you're very talented in all areas. So was it like a natural fit just to start up the radio show? Did you have like nerves going in? Like was it? Oh, I, I was way too cocky. I will tell you that. <laughs> I was not nervous at all. I thought, oh, this is a piece of cake. I've been teaching for 40 years. This is no different. Until I got into the studio for the first time, and there was no audience. And I never realized until that very moment how much of my energy. Um, and my enthusiasm and my passion is fueled by my audience, whether it's my students or whatever. And I was stuttering. I really had it. The first show, I was, 
it was really difficult for me. I was really nervous, and I'm not a person who gets nervous, especially with speaking. So I actually had my... <laughs> I came into class the next week, and I told my students, everybody get together. And I took a picture of them on my cell phone. And I used to bring it up on the screen and the computer and talk to that picture while I was there. <laughs> so I would feel more comfortable having an audience. <laughs> That's so interesting because I'm just thinking about myself. I'm more comfortable doing a podcast, doing being alone, being kind of like you know, having my little focus on the microphone. And then like in my professional life, like I did a presentation recently where I had a group of like, you know, a hundred people that I was presenting to and I got nervous. And so, you know, what I did was I imagined myself doing a podcast in ah. order to kind of calm my nerves. So you're just the opposite where you're, you're <laughs> you know, yeah, I can see Sean. Next time you do a presentation, you take a photograph of the mic and then you put it in front of you and you speak to that mic. Just bring Josh. I'll just bring him with me, and you know, I'll just sit him beside me and just keep looking at him. Yeah, that's funny. And yeah, so, you guys are funny. <laughs> so that that's amazing that you have that, and you do it as it. Can you tell us a little bit about the show. You do it every week. Yes, every Saturday, ten a.m. And you know, that's a a bit of an issue. There was some discussion, let's say, between myself and the station in terms of prime time. But, you know, I'm not a celebrity uh, radio talk show. I'm not Imus, you know. Uh, so um, I, I had to take what I could get, and I had to take – they have, like, four different stations. So I had to take the station that they uh, gave me. And, but I wanted to get on their other station, which was uh, I could reach more people. Um, and they said, well – you know, we know you have this background and we know you've been teaching, but you have no experience in radio. So you really kind of have to prove yourself. So I, they said six months. I, I did it for a year and proved myself. And now we're in negotiations to put me on the other station. Oh, wow. That's really yeah. exciting. Yeah. So I'll have a lot more exposure. That's amazing. And I think, too, like you have the podcast aspect of it because you turn every episode, every live mm -hmm. episode into a podcast. So I think that in itself is its own thing because like i'm i guess i'm young and so i uh i always listen to the podcast i don't listen to radio anymore right. i think because of the commercials and stuff so and like i want to be geared towards me i don't want to like plan my life around the radio right mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. i think yeah like i think everyone's just going i think in that way so it's kind of cool you're still maintaining that radio show and you said like you'll get a bigger audience but i think your podcast is I like for I think the younger audience the what I think it matters as you move forward. I don't know. What are your yes. thoughts on that? Do you see like the podcast growing that movement? Yes, um, I get far more hits, probably three times as many hits on my podcast than I do on an average listener number on a Saturday, because on Saturdays they call and it's interesting that you use that expression. I don't want to you know revolve my life around. A particular time, um, they call the shows on Saturdays appointment listening, <laughs> and it's for people who make an appointment to only listen on Saturday at ten to a show about. Uh, uh, there's one show about um, bugs, how to uh, terminate bugs in your house, flies and bats and ticks and all of that, and there are appointment listeners who listen only on that Saturday at 9 a.m. to at, call this, this gentleman and ask him how to get rid of whatever in the house. And then there's another one, which is a homeopathic doctor, and that's another appointment listener who people will only tune in at 11 
so they can ask a question about their health. So my show, Journeys, also had become uh, an, an appointment show where the same people will, the same number actually almost, give or take 100 or 200, will listen every Saturday. And then, you know, I'll start getting texts and Facebook messages. But yeah, the podcast, uh, much, many more people listen to that. Do you have a goal with the radio show in the next year or two or five or 10 um, that you want to sort of see? No, I, I think I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> think... You have goals for everything else. This is not a shock. <laughs> yeah, no, see that now that's like accomplished. So, you know, maybe the short term goal is to do the other station. But in terms of radio, no, I'm, I would be looking more at television talk shows. Uh, wonderful. And, and, you know, it's just making yourself available to the network of, sorry, all the population in the United States. You know, there's 300 mm -hmm. million plus people there. You want listeners in California. You want someone in New York. You want someone in Florida to be able to listen to you when when they have the time to listen to you. You know, you have such an important message. So, you know, again, like, so when someone's in the car and they want to, as they're driving, turn on your radio program, they don't have to like wait for, you know, again, 10 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday and, you know, people don't live their lives like that anymore necessarily. So right. when someone's cooking and they want to like, you know, listen in on, on your show and they can do that with the freedom from wherever they're sitting to be able to do that. So, you know, I, I have a lot of faith in you, obviously your ambition, your drive. I think you're, you're doing an amazing job. You have this refreshing curtness about you that I think people are going to really, you know, it, it's, it's not really like from a lot of interviews that we're talking about, not, not a lot of people have that. So I think that's a great aspect, a great angle that you have, which you can carry it forward with you and to like wake people up, you know, literally take them and shake them and tell them that death is here, you know, and I yeah. can see that you're doing that. As we talk through the topic of death, let's talk about loss. What sort of losses have you had in your life that you'd like to share with us? I think the first major loss, my grandmother, who because of my mother being ill, was very much uh, a surrogate mother to me. And, you know, typical funeral directors. I happened to be in the hospital having surgery the day she died. And, you know, the culture is keep secrets. Don't upset anybody. So, you know, I used to visit her almost every morning and have a cup of coffee with her. And I remember being in the hospital saying, well, did you guys tell Nanny that I was having surgery? And they're like, no, no, we don't want to upset her. We'll tell her after it's all over. And I'm thinking, well, what is she going to think that I'm not there for coffee this morning? And so, you know, what happens? She passes that day. And now I'm really angry at my parents for not telling them, for telling my grandmother. And um, it was fascinating, though. I think she was there because my husband and my mother told me later that the doctors told them that I was full of cancer and that they were going to do the surgery, but there was no hope and no treatment. And they chose not to tell me going into the surgery this information. So they were shocked and excited when I came out of the surgery and the doctor said, oh, we were wrong. We misdiagnosed it. It was precancerous, not cancerous. She's going to be fine. And it was within 10 minutes of my grandmother's death. So uh, I, I like to think that Nanny came into the operating room and uh, assisted that surgeon and she knew where I was. But 
as I said, in typical funeral director fashion, I I'm, can't go to the wake of the funeral either because I'm in the hospital. So my brothers took pictures. So I have this whole album of my grandmother in the casket and the flowers and a videotape of the funeral. So I would have closure and feel as if I were there. Um, the second major I, when I say major, I mean like life-changing because I've had many dear friends who have passed away, but it was my father. And this is a bittersweet story because my father had Parkinson's disease. And, but he was, you know, he used to laugh at himself. He would still go golfing. He'd fall out of the golf cart and roll down the hill and he'd be laughing at himself. He had a real good attitude towards it. But he, you know, it really uh, impacted on his speech, and it was difficult to understand what he was saying, and I know that frustrated him. But in any event, my parents were snowbirds. I don't know if you know what a snowbird is, but it's people who leave New England and go to Florida for the winter, and then they come back when it's spring in New England. So every January, my parents moved down to Florida, and every May, they came home. Well, this particular winter, I was just finishing, because that was on my bucket list for that year, was to get my doctorate. <laughs> so I had, so this time it was finish my dissertation and defend. So my defense was scheduled for February 6th of that year. So a couple of days before my defense, you know, I, they called, my parents called me and wished me luck. And my father kind of mumbled through telling me, oh, good luck. Monday, I'm finally going to be able to say my daughter, the doctor, because he had been wanting to do that for like my whole life. So the next day, the next evening, I should say, I received a phone call from my mother, who was absolutely hysterical, telling me that my father, they were out with a couple of other couples and uh, having dinner. And my father had choked on a piece of meat. And because of the Parkinson's, the Heimlich maneuver didn't work because of the, his throat muscles. So he was, there was a, even a doctor in the restaurant, but there was, um, because of his loss of oxygen, he actually had a heart attack in the restaurant and he was on life support. And it was, it was just so bizarre. Of course, things, nothing ever happens to me that's just kind of traditional boring story. Everything's got all these little chapters to it. So it's February, it's school vacation, it's a driving snowstorm like tomorrow, there are no flights, and we can't get to Florida. And we're begging my mother to keep him on life support until we get there. Trains aren't running, and nothing. And so finally, a friend of a friend had access to a corporate jet. And so it was about three or four days after my father was put on life support, that we finally were able to fly to Florida. So we got to Florida, and he had passed while on life support. So we went to the funeral home. Um, well, we brought his body to the funeral home, and being, you know, family of funeral directors, we we all went in. I um, I, I washed his legs and his feet and put his socks on, and I combed his hair. And then my brothers asked me to leave while they dressed him. And then we got him a casket. We were trying to maintain as much dignity as possible to take him home, which when he came home, he would have another casket. And the, the day 
after he died, when when we were in Florida, I don't know if you know about this in Canada, but we had a a huge um, nightclub fire, and 100 people died in the fire, and they couldn't even be identified for weeks. And uh, my family's funeral home offered to uh, provide free funeral services for the victims of the station nightclub fire. So they asked me to kind of just pitch in, come into the office and type up some death certificates and things like that. So here we are. We just took my father's body back to Rhode Island. And there's 100 people who are dead who were trying to get, you know, dental records and things like this. And um, my, my defense is now scheduled for the day of my father's funeral. And my readers, my committee said, don't defend, don't defend. You can't go from a funeral. You spent three years working on, you know, your doctoral work and then the dissertation. You, you, you can't. It's too important. Put it off. And my mother's saying to me, don't you dare. Your father, if he was here right now, would be saying, no, no. Go and do it. Don't cancel it just because I died. And so I did it. So I, I went to a defense that I don't remember any of it. And ironically enough, all of my cohort thought I needed the support. So, you know, usually when you defend, you got your committee, maybe another professor there. No, this room was full of like 25 people who were there to support me. But I remember just being very anxious, walking in there saying, like, I know they think they're doing a good thing, but I don't want them all here. And I just went through the motions. I left, you know, they said, we'll call you back in. So the way it worked is my father's funeral mass to the cemetery where I did the eulogy, took the limousine to the university to do my defense. And then the limousine took me back to the collation for my father's funeral where everybody congratulated me and offered me their condolences simultaneously. And the day his obituary was in the paper, I remember being very angry, selfishly angry, because I really thought there was going to be this big, giant obituary with his picture, because he was a very prominent man in the state. But because of the station nightclub fire, his I wrote a short story about this, that his obituary was just kind of almost invisible among the hundred pictures of the people who died from the fire. And it just looked like a little small picture from a high school yearbook. And I was very upset that he was not acknowledged in the way in which I thought he should be. So those are two huge uh, life-changing deaths that I've had in my life. Wow. Really sorry to hear that. And what a weird set of circumstances for... That you don't really think about, about not even defending, but even having a funeral where there's a other mass funeral that occurred with a hundred people. And yep. you're right, it's just those are different things I never really thought about that people have to face. Um mm-hmm. that's unique to their, their story. Wow. And so moving forward, have you ever dreamt of either of those two people? Oh, my grandmother never visits me, but my father comes very often. And one thing, uh, you know, that sticks in my mind that Josh said on the radio show was, well, there's two kinds. There's grief, dreams, and then there's visitations. And I'm always, you know, when people tell me their dreams, clients or whatever, I'll say, well, that was a visitation. That wasn't a dream. (laughs) Um, My father visits me very often. And he doesn't have Parkinson's disease. He speaks very clearly. He always has a trench coat on. And he always has a custard pie in his hand. 
and he stands at the end of my bed and then tells me things. So I just had one three nights ago, and he said, Mary, I just wanted to let you know I'm really excited to see Frank. We have so much reminiscent to do. Wow, did we have a good time. Now, this was his best, best friend for like years. And so I thought, does he know something I don't know? So I call my mom and I said, Mom, how's Frank doing? And she said, oh, Mary, you didn't know? He's in hospice. They're not giving him more than a week to live. Now, I didn't know this. So I said, that's what Daddy said. That's why he came. He was really excited, looking forward to Frank because he wants, he wants to have a, you know, reminisce with him. So that was very cool. But yeah, wow. he comes all the time. Sometimes I just smell a cigar and I say, Dad, I know you're here. What do you want to tell me? I remember shortly after he died, like one of my nephews graduated from pharmacy school. A lot of big things happened in the family. And I remember feeling bad that my father wasn't there to experience it. One being my defense, you know, and the fact that he could finally call me a doctor. And he came to me. And again, I think it was a visitation. And he said, Mary, I know you feel really bad um, that I'm not able to experience all the things that's going on in the family, but I can. He said, because what it's like for me is it's like I'm, I'm a star and I'm looking down into the earth, but the earth is, it's like a glass ball. I can see right through it. So even though it looks like a globe, you know, and I can see the continents and whatever, if I really look and squint, I can look all the way down right into watching you defend, watching you at my funeral, watching your cousin, your nephew getting his pharmacy degree. I can see it all. I'm not missing anything. So I thought that was pretty cool. So I just have to kind of summon yeah. him and he shows up. That's so interesting. And so why is he in a trench coat? Is that something he used to wear know. a lot? I don't know. <laughs> I know why he's got a custard pie, but I don't know about the trench coat. Yeah, I, I think have the to pie ask him next time. <laughs> what? What's with the pie? Can well, I have some? Italians, <laughs> obviously food is love. And you never visit anyone without bringing pastry. And you never, and no one can ever stop by your house unexpectedly and you not having anything for them. But it's got to be like a pastry. And for some reason, I don't know whether because it was inexpensive or it was someone's favorite, but all we ever had, we were always bringing custard pie to people's houses. And when they came to visit us, we always had a custard pie for them. So it's a sign of welcome, of congeniality, of all of those things. And He's always got a custard pie in his hand. Wow, that's so cool. So when we come visit you in Rhode Island, we, ha we have to You'll bring have a, to have a custard, custard pie. pie. I know. Okay. In All fact, right. I just got told it. this story. I told this story to my cousin Sunday. And yesterday she texted me and her mother's there, who's my father's sister. And she said, my mom just asked me for something sweet. So I went to the market and guess what I bought? A custard pie. <laughs> so I reminded her of it. But um and the other thing, well, this is not a dream. This was an end of life. I have a lot of end of life stories. But unfortunately, I lost my cousin who was in his early 60s in the spring of last year. And it was a matter of pulling the plug or intubating him. And, you know, the family said, we don't want to intubate him. We'll pull the plug. So it, it was the first and I think only time I was at a deathbed where the patient was completely lucid and 
So, you know, we asked, well, my aunt asked the nurse, how long is this going to be? And she said, it could be two minutes, two hours, two days. We don't know. But he has very low oxygen levels, so we don't expect him to take very long. So they take it off him, and he immediately says, oh, thank God you took that off me. I'm so thirsty. I need a glass of diet cranberry juice. So we got him a glass of juice, and there's like 12 people there. And he's talking to everybody. So, Mary, what are you going to do this weekend? And talking to his niece and whatever. And he's dying. But I don't know that he knows that he's dying. I think his mother told him he just had a cold. And I I don't know whether he was in denial or whatever, but he's having this whole conversation with us. And there's no morphine involved at this point. He's just talking to us. And then all of a sudden, he simply stopped talking and he looked at the ceiling and his whole face changed. He had this kind of I don't know, aura around his face. I've seen this a lot at death where there's no wrinkles and there's a sense of calmness and it's like shine. And he just looked up at the ceiling and he, in the middle of a conversation, said, I see it. I see it. Just like that. And we said, what do you see? And his eyes filled with tears and of joy. And he said, happiness. And we just all were aghast. Because he wasn't on morphine, you know, they always try to explain that, oh, well, that's the morphine, it's a hallucination, or this or that. No, he was completely lucid. Isn't that a great story? It is a great story. Wow. And I'm guessing you have a lot of other stories that we're going to have to have you back on the podcast <laughs> to share some of those stories and share some of your other dreams that you had. Because I'm guessing you said you had a lot. And I'm just curious, yes. before we move on to the next topic, do you ever eat that pastry that your dad gives you in the dream? No. No, okay. <laughs> he, just, no. he just brings it and you leave it on the table. Yeah, I think he, <laughs> so I think he moving... takes it back with him. <laughs> oh. <laughs> For the next time. Yes. <laughs> I guess food doesn't expire. Is that the... <laughs> no, it's the same pie every time. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so moving forward, is there a dream you may want to have that you may not have had uh, so far? So it could be some, maybe just reliving a memory or it could be maybe with your grandma. Like, Is there a dream of one of those two that you may want to have? I would love to have a dream uh, uh, with my grandmother. I would love to know, I know she's fine. I know she's doing wonderfully, and there's lots of people, lots of friends up there. And she now has both her sons with her. But I just, I would want to know, like, she used to say to me, when you grow up, you're going to be principal of a college. <laughs> And I, I didn't have the heart to correct her. There was no such thing as a principal of a college. But um, she had very high hopes for me. She was she was the one that really, mm, the fact that I was a female didn't make any difference. She thought I could do whatever I wanted to do. She was had such confidence in me. And um, in fact, she was, she was a, an LPN. I mean, she was born in 1890, and she went to nursing school. She became an LPN. She was the first class. So she was very much an independent woman when there was no such thing as independent women. Um, and I would just want her to – I would want to know if if she knew everything that I accomplished. I don't need to know That's if she's proud of me because if she didn't know what I accomplished, she would be proud of me. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. And you've done a lot in your life. Um, and you achieved a lot. So that's that's very interesting. Is there a setting you'd want to have? Like, did you want to go have tea with her again? Yeah, you know, they've changed so much about the funeral home, but they have not touched Nanny's kitchen. So the same wallpaper, the same table and chairs, everything is exactly how she left it. 
And sometimes I just go up there and sit in the kitchen and I talk to her. So I think that's where I would like it to be, in the funeral home upstairs in her kitchen. I like that. And last question is, what would you like to wear? Does she have like, I'm guessing, not a trench coat, I'm guessing? <laughs> maybe, <laughs> oh, nanny? maybe some kind of attire. Yeah, nanny. <laughs> oh, nanny would have a house dress on with, you know, some of the buttons unbuttoned. She would have on knee-high pantyhose that would be rolled down to her ankles with big fluffy slippers. She would have her teeth out and she would be smoking a cigarette nonstop. And every time that she inhaled, tip of the cigarette would hit the tip of her nose because her teeth were out. And she had this little burn spot on the tip of her nose. So I'm sitting there talking to her and she's smoking and She's slipping me a $10 bill into my palm before I leave, but don't ten- tell any of the other grandchildren I gave it to you. <laughs> Thank you for asking oh, me that man, question. That's, that's, oh, it's such a great image, and I'm glad you're able to like create that in your mind because it's those little things, right? It's those little mm-hmm. things that we remember and that we cherish about our loved ones that have passed away. Uh, that's incredible. And again, Mary, you know, it's been awesome speaking with you. I feel like, uh, you know, I can look up to you as a mentor. And I'm sure Joshua feels the same because you've done some amazing. That's a great way to put, you know, someone who's <laughs> someone who is quote unquote old, you know, like like Josh had alluded to earlier. Um, <laughs> as, a, as a mentor. No, but seriously, though, you're, you know, like you like you had said, like, you know, you are an independent powerful person and you know whether it was your grandmother or other people in your life that told you that i'm glad that they did because you know look at the amazing work that you're doing now with the radio thing and beyond that with the book and you know again taking it to a next level and you're seeing that uh those doors opening so that's incredible so is there what are some of your contacts where people can reach you or listen to your show Okay, so on Facebook, um, they can just, <clears throat> excuse me, search for Grace Point, that's point with an E, grief. And the website for Grace Point is www.gracepoint, with an E, grief.com. And all the podcasts are on there, uh, as well as all the information about me and the practice. Or you can reach me at, do you have to dial a country code from Canada? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, it'd be, so it's, it would it's be one four zero one five two four three zero three nine, and you can email me directly through the gracepointgrief.com website as well. Perfect, that's great, and I hope like definitely uh, the people who are listening will do that. Reach out to you, listen to your work, and can feel the amazing presence that we're getting, and that you Thank know you. I'm sure you have that same. I'm sure you have that same presence on radio as well. Um, so we'll uh, end with our stuff. Please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. Uh, check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. Uh, this podcast can be found on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Overcast, and many other podcasting platforms. And uh, if you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, please email us with your story and what you would like to share. And that is can be found at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. So, so griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. Um, so we like to end the show with uh, love and gratitude from us to you. The new beginning begins.